us that Christ's kingdom will come. He says this all over the place in the Old Testament, the New Testament. You can pick your book, open it up, and at some point you will hear something along the lines of God's kingdom is here, it is coming, it will come. There is going to be a day when all men everywhere will bow the knee. And this is what we pray for. This is what we hope for. But it has in it, when we pray these petitions, they have in it a, a doingness attached to them that we can't simply just pray and not act. That we are all actually participants in the answers to these prayers. Um, if you think of something like Romans 10... How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That there is the command to pray that His kingdom come, the promise that His kingdom will come, and then the actions we take as a result of those things. And they're all intertwined. They're not separate things. We do something. God promised something else. We pray for something else. We pray for what God promised so that He will accomplish it through us. That's how prayer works. We are constantly needing realignment to what God has done, what God has promised, and what God said He will do through us. The warning then is that oftentimes our prayers are not done in accord with God's will. Oftentimes we pray prayers that actually are fairly selfish prayers. All through Scripture we're warned against this thing in passages such as James 2 or James 4. You do not have because you do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Over and over and over again in Scripture we are given promises that if we ask He will answer. He will do. Well, a lot of us ask for a lot of things. And sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says wait. And sometimes He ignores us completely. He says, I am not listening to you because you are asking wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so it's an invalid prayer. You didn't even start right. You had your own kingdom in mind. And so one of the things that this prayer does is it reorients our mind that our kingdom, our kingdom, the things that we desire are not the most important if they are not aligned with His kingdom and His desires. And they all have to die. All of our earthly desires, the passions that we have to build our own kingdoms in whatever manner that is, have to die. I was reading a sermon by... Charles Spurgeon this week on this passage, and it was almost exclusively on this this sort of idea uh, that we, and it was given to the Missionary Alliance Association in England at the time that he was preaching this. So he was talking to a bunch of missionaries going out all across the world, and he said, basically, you have to get your will lined up better with God. So these were not people that were just sitting in the pews. These were people who had probably been afield and were home. Other people who had been giving generously in prayer and support. He even talks about how their goal that year was to raise a million dollars for the Baptist Missionary Alliance. 
But this is some of what he said in there. That will, God's kingdom coming and his will being done, may cost us dearly. Yet it will never cross our wills. Let our minds be wholly subjugated to the mind of God. That will, his will, his kingdom, may bring us bereavement, sickness, and loss. But let us learn to say, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. We should not only yield to the divine will, but give into it so as to rejoice in the tribulation that it ordains. Paul says as much, I rejoice in my suffering. Last week I read a prayer out of Habakkuk where he says, basically, if you don't do any of the good things, yet I will rejoice. And I said how impossible that prayer is. It's over and over again through Scripture that we need God to help us to pray rightly. We are constantly at odds with Him in the way we think about His kingdom and His will. Here again, this is again Charles Spurgeon. I went past it. Hang on. God knows what will best minister to His gracious designs. To us, it seems a sad waste of human life that a man after man should go to a malarious region and perish in the attempt to save the heathen. We measure... God's will being done by a different metric. But God's metric is faithfulness. This is His test. This is whether or not we are in His will. It is, are we faithful? It's very difficult to put your finger on any point in Scripture and say, this absolutely is what God does everywhere. Because God works mysteriously in every place differently. All through Scripture. In one place, Paul climbs out through the wall and abandons the city that he's evangelizing. In another place, he stays and is stoned. In another place, he preaches and there is a riot. In another place, he preaches in the, like the Thessalonian church, they give out of their extreme poverty. That the faithfulness just bubbles up. All over the place, God acts differently. And we look at the outward things, what has happened in a place, and we say, well, that must not be what God wills. But the question is not whether or not we can discern if that is what God's will is, but whether or not we are being faithful to pray for it, hope for it, and work towards it. This is what it means to be faithful in these things. What God has promised we must pray for. We must pray for it. Over and over and over again, God's promises are the prompt for God's people to pray. It's not the other way around. What we do is first we understand what God's will is, and then we pray for that. This is true in lots of places, but going back to the story of Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, What he did was read the prophecies of Jeremiah, 
realized that the 70 years were about to come up, and then he prayed that God would actually do the thing he had already promised to do. He bowed his knee because God had promised something. Let your kingdom come means let the gospel be preached to the ends of the earth. And so we will be found either in that will, in that kingdom making or not. God has promised it will happen. In fact, he's given many promises to that effect all through scripture. To the with the final one being and God will have the gospel preached to all the four corners of the earth and then the end will come. Not before. And how are we to measure that? How do we know when that has happened? Are we in God's mind to know when that metric has been met? Do we know what it means for the gospel to go to all four corners of the earth? We don't. We have ideas of how that metric will be met. We know that of the approximately 6,000 people groups that we count as people groups, which is mostly by language these days, that there are a vast majority of them who have never heard the gospel. And so what do we do? We make plans to go and take the gospel to people who have not heard, that we don't know if they have ever heard the gospel. And so we have to know that it's God's will to take the gospel to the ends of the kingdoms of the earth, and then we have to pray for it, and then we have to do it. They're all intertwined. We have to know it, pray it, and do it. This is all God's people all through history. And it's all, again, dependent on who God is. If God is not the creator, maker, sustainer of the earth, if God doesn't own the cattle on a thousand hills, then we would have no hope to actually do any of this. Story after story, missionary biography after missionary biography could be read. But just the generality of something like China and the red curtain coming down and all the missionaries being thrown out and there being an estimated 10,000 Christians and 40 years later, 50 years later when the red curtain lifts where we think devastation will have wrought the kingdom of God to almost nothing where we think there probably won't be any faith left in the land a million people believers and now China a hundred years after the Red Curtain, almost, 80 years after the Red Curtain, is one of the highest sending missionary countries in the entire world. And then what happened two years ago? China again. Clamped down. Foreign missionaries booted. Friends of ours personally kicked out. Gone. No more missionaries. Because we would be fooling ourselves to think that the Chinese government thought an English teacher was not a missionary. They knew the whole time. And when they decided, okay, we're done here, they took all the English teachers and they threw them out of the country. And so for the last two years, it's been absolute lockdown. No missionaries in, all of them out. We don't know how and when the kingdom of God will advance on this earth. No one could have predicted that happening again to the same country 80 years later. 
And yet God, through His providence and kindness, grew His kingdom beyond what we could ever hope or imagine in a closed-off kingdom. We don't understand. We do not know the mind of God. We don't know where He will blow and how He will act. And this is good news. It's really good news that we do not understand or know the mind of God in these things. How in the world could it be good news that we have no idea where and when and how God will act? It's fairly simple. If we're already somewhat selfish in the way we pray, we already have to guard against bad passions and desires in praying, even for something like the kingdom of God and His will being done. If that's already a problem, and we don't even know the end, imagine what we would do to be a part of the sure thing. We would absolutely abandon anything that wasn't going to give us a 100% return on our money. That little church, like ours, with 30 people, they can make it on their own. I'm going to go to the big one with 10,000 that's sending missionaries all across the globe and is extremely successful because that's what I am going to hitch my wagon to. If we knew where God was going to act, we would pay no attention to the places where perhaps the greatest needs for the saints are. Because that's really the second half of this. We pray for the kingdom to come and His will to be done, and we think that the place and the, where that action is happening is on the front lines only. And yet much of that is the sort of thing that just happened this week at our church. Where was the kingdom of God built in Jasper last week? Where was his will done in Jasper last week? The home of Clyde and Louise. That was kingdom building. That was will being done. And we have to fight against the urge to think that there's something better and greater and more illustrious out there. As though the simple, mundane, caring, loving is somehow beneath us and not worthy of our cause. We have to guard against this, and we don't even know the future. And this is what we have to guard against. But last week, the kingdom was built. The kingdom did come. His will was done on earth as it was in heaven. And it happened in prayers. It happened in meals. It happened at a funeral. It's hard for us to see that. It's very hard for us to see that. Our will, though, is not always compatible or aligned with what God is doing. We want not just God's kingdom to come, but His will to be done. And this is really the more difficult of the two. This is where... We would much rather be part of the big thing that's happening rather than the small things of doing. The will of God, though, is fairly simple. In fact, it's been summarized two different ways in Scripture. One, 
in 10. The Ten Commandments are the will of God. They are a summary of everything God would have us to do. And then Jesus further simplified those ten into two. This is the will of God. Love God. Love your neighbor. And so we think that what must be happening in this prayer and what we must be thinking about all the time is these grand adventures across the world. And that may be part of the will of God for you, for our church, and I hope it will be. But in the meantime... Let's not forget that the fact that we are here now, this is God's kingdom here, and the will of God now is to love Him and serve one another. God will be pleased by that. There is no great hurrah in doing this. There's no great, wonderful end-of-year celebration that says, you have accomplished the will of God. But if you have loved your neighbor, you have. And so we have to look, we have to study, we have to know what the will of God is. We have to be not satisfied with small bits and pieces of the law of God. But we have to love the whole thing. The law of God has three purposes. One is the civil realm, right? The law of God is to be known by our civil authorities, used by our civil authorities to govern well. So it's to take what is shown in the civil laws and the moral laws of the Old Testament and to use them as a basis for instructing us now. We've talked about this before. The law of like the parapet on the roof. The fence on the roof has no application basically to our present day. But the law of having a fence around your pool is a similar sort of law. We have taken what God had said to protect life in the civil realm, and we apply it modern day. That's the civil use. Then we have what we generally think of as the purpose of the law, and that is to confront sinners who are without Christ so that they would know their sin and come to Christ. And we say to those outside, God has said, do not lie. Do not bear false witness. Have you done that? And they say, well, yeah. God has said, thou shalt not murder, and to hate someone in your heart is the murder. Have you done that? Well, yes. And that's to drive people to the cross. But the third use, the third use of the law is for us, the believer, the Christian. It's so that we might know the will of God. So that we might know what pleases Him. So that we might follow it in joy and happiness, loving one another well. It's for that purpose. It's for that design. It's been given to us so that we might know the will of God and then do it. Again from Charles Spurgeon on the matter. The loyal subject respects the whole law. If anything be the will of the Lord, he will have no choice in the matter. The choice is made by our Lord. Let us pray that we may neither misunderstand the Lord's will, nor forget it, nor violate it. And so when we pray for the will of God to be done on earth, 
We have to, again, we have to know what it is so that we might pray for it, so that we might do it. This is always the thing. It's always interconnected. You can't have any of them without all the rest. If you act on your own, trying to accomplish the will of God, you will not succeed. Scripture is very clear. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. We cannot succeed in any, any endeavor, whether that is the smallest good deed done, a smile at a stranger on the street, will have no effect eternally unless God is in it. It is done in faith, believing that something as small as that may have an actual consequence. All the way up to the greatest things we could think of to do for the kingdom of God, the giving up of our lives. Dying for the sake of others. That will have no effect. No effect at all for the kingdom or the doing of God's will if He is not involved. We have to pray that He does these things. We have to trust that it is not us doing them, but Christ through us doing them. This is... A very difficult concept for us to get. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks when we go through the next petitions. But it comes through, I think, most readily in Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread. And so a foretaste of that. How many of us actually pray this prayer and mean it with any sincerity? Where do we actually think our daily bread comes from? Our bank account, our retirement plan, our equity, our refrigerator. That's where we think our daily bread comes from. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a level of faith and trust that few of us experience on a daily basis. Some of us have a remembering of some time in which they actually prayed that prayer. But I would ask you this, did you pray it meaningfully yesterday? Did you think in the evening, when you ate whatever you ate, but by the grace of God, I would go hungry tonight? Or did you think, I wish I had something different in my fridge? The will of God is very simple, It is very clear. It is very concise. We ought not to think we're wiser than God in this matter. What tends to happen if we short-circuit this, if we think we can find the will of God in some other manner, if we think there is some great discovery yet to be made, or if we think somebody figured it out 50 years ago or 100 years ago, or this great author just wrote this book and he knows the will of God, If he doesn't talk about the commands of God, he knows nothing of the will of God. You cannot understand God and what he wills without his commandments. You cannot do it. It cannot be done. And any attempt to do so creates a false will that has nothing to do with God. So what does this mean for us? It means that we actually have to give ourselves the studying of God's will. 
it means that we have to give up on our own wills every time they come in conflict with His. And the only way that we can ever have hope to do either of those things is by praying that God would do them. Here is again Charles Spurgeon. And this is the final point I will make this morning. So, almost assuredly, because you, like me, are quick to find exceptions. You will think of the one or two times in the last week or month or year that you think you accomplished God's will. And so what's happening right now is a struggle within you to say, no, 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 I did. I did it. Like I, you don't know about this thing, Joe. You, you, don't, you don't see my whole life, the 168 hours in my week. You don't know where I actually did it. I accomplished it. I found God's will. I have followed God's will. I have done what you are asking. I'm good. Because that's what I do. And that's what we all do. And that's exactly what Charles Spurgeon says we do. Too often, we fall into self-congratulation. And it defiles our best deeds. We whisper to ourselves... I did that very well. We flatter ourselves that there was no self in our conduct, but while we are laying that flattering unction to our souls, we are lying. As our self-contentment proves, God might have allowed us to do ten times as much had He not known that it would not be safe. Do we know ourselves well enough to know that we are entirely dependent upon God's Spirit to do even the simplest task of loving our neighbor well. Loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Prayer, then, is not the afterthought of the Christian life, the thing we do just to ask for forgiveness, but is the preparatory work towards anything good that ever happens on this earth. Without prayer... Nothing of God's will will ever be accomplished. Even though we know it and we think we have done it. Because God will not be in it. We must, must give ourselves to prayer. I think our Lord reminds us of this when right before this He says, Your Father knows what you need before you even ask. If it was really up to us to accomplish anything, we would have no need to ask because God would have already done it. But there is a dependence issue here, a humbling issue that we have to go to the Lord to ask for the things that He has promised so that we might have strength to actually do them in faith. This is the work of a Christian. This is the work of kingdom coming. This is the work of will being done. And just like Joshua has said, it is a clinging to the Lord. This is our work in prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray this morning.
Won't you stand as I pray? And then we will sing together. Father in heaven, at best our prayers are mingled with self.